So good morning. Thank you for joining us. Um, we are joined this morning by Dr. York Shung. Uh, Dr. Shung is a professor of surgery at UBC and uh, also a surgeon at VGH. Um, so welcome, Dr. Shung. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me this morning. Good morning, Marianne. Very happy to be here. So tell me a little bit about your story. Um, your professional, what happened professionally to you in terms of are you still practicing? What has happened to your license? Right. Um, well, I've been a vascular surgeon for 32 years at the UBC and Vancouver General Hospitals, and I've been a professor of vascular surgery at UBC um, for uh, full professor since uh, 2000. Um, <clears throat> And what has happened to me is that um, when these vaccine mandates were rolled out for all medical staff um, who works and work in hospitals, as well as university staff um, who teach at hospitals, um, I was forced um, into a choice. The choice was um, continue to work, but you have to be vaccinated or if you choose not to disclose your status or choose not to be vaccinated, then you will be placed um, on leave without pay. Um, and so I um, elected not to disclose my status since I didn't feel that, that it was any, uh, you know, they had no right to ask that of me. Um, and I instead chose to um, retire early from uh, being a surgeon at the Vancouver General Hospital as well as a UBC professor. And that happened um, at the hospital in November of last year uh, at the University of December last year. So what was the response of your colleagues or your superiors? What, what was the reaction that you were getting? I would say the reaction I had was very little from um, the surgeons as a group. Um, and certainly when I decided to step down from surgery from the hospital, um, I didn't really get much response at all. The um, Response I got uh, from uh, leaving UBC as a professor primarily was because I notified all of my collaborators that I was um, doing this. Um, and then I would say that half of them were quite shocked that this, that this happened. Very interesting. And in since you made your decision and stepped out and took early retirement, have you heard from any of these colleagues? I've heard from a few of them, and so we do keep in touch. Um, you know, I generally don't um, speak about my views, not knowing what their thinking is. Um, and only if um, they would bring up something or if something was very was quite obvious. For instance, um, there was a, a recent outbreak um, of COVID in um, the East, such as in Hong Kong, as well as in China. And when that would um, you know, come up, I would just say, well, what do you think is actually going on over there? And then that would initiate a discussion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Have you found people to be uh, quite cold with you or standoffish or more curious? Um, as I said, you know, I don't um, openly talk about um, the reasons why I uh, chose not to disclose my vaccination status. I don't think it's any business of, of theirs to know, nor do I ask other people. Um, as a result of that, um, I, I don't know if people have been more cold since they don't really know 
um, what I'm thinking. I'm not on social media. Uh, if there are any comments, I'm not hearing them. I do know that, um, you know, my wife's family is very large um, and we have not had um, our typical twice yearly gatherings. Um, the last one was probably 2019. Um, and any attempts to try and get together, uh, nobody's interested in doing that. And it's always a comment like, well, we'll just wait for things to get better. And things clearly are not getting better. Right. So what? tell me about your journey. You obviously are aware of the truth as to what's going on with COVID and the vaccine. Tell me, right. tell me about your journey. Well, it, it's actually quite a long story. Um, and I would, I'll try to um, be as brief as possible. Um, my journey into questioning um, the truth behind a lot of things probably started in medical school. Um, when in fact, we had a professor of pediatrics who asked the class a really fundamental question. Well, he asked two questions. The first question was, um, name one drug that you treat um, pediatric leukemia of, with, and everyone could answer that because there, there's about six drugs at the time. And then he said, what is the caloric content of breast milk? And nobody knew the answer to that. And he said, what a bunch of lousy students you are. You know, you know things about very small rare conditions such as leukemia, but every child drinks milk and you know nothing about it. And it was a fascinating comment that, in fact, medical school never prepared you for a lot of um, basic, obvious things. Um, and then <clears throat> I would say that um, in 2009, I came across a fascinating article that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine talking about a drug that is widely used. And the drug is, is called gabapentin, or otherwise known as Neurontin. And it was the basis of a class action lawsuit against the manufacturers of Neurontin because they basically said, and this was in published in 2009, um, that the um, manufacturers of this drug were not pleased for the fact that it was only allowed to be used for childhood seizures. And the guy at the top said that our market's not big enough. I want everyone out there doing sales. I want Neurontin to be used for a cough, a cold, anything. And what they did, this was all published, <clears throat> was that they went out, they recruited doctors to speak. They sent doctors on these nice junkets. They had um, articles written by ghost writers to allow these um, uh, <clears throat> professors to publish their names to it. They made huge donations to hospitals and universities. And this was a basis of a class action lawsuit. Why that article is so fascinating for me is that this is a drug we commonly use when we induce pain in patients who have, you know, who have surgery. We commonly give this drug, and I, I gave a round to the residents and the staff at the time on <clears throat> what would you do in this type of complication? <clears throat> and the complication was something that is quite common. We uh, injure a uh, what's known as a sensory nerve or a nerve that supplies skin. And as a result of that, you develop a condition known as neuropraxia, where you now have pain in the area where that nerve has been damaged. Um, and the reflexively, all the residents and the staff said, we prescribe gabapentin or Neurontin. And I said, why do you do that? 
And they said, well, we were told this is what we do. And I said, well, this is the article that tells you you're doing the wrong thing. And I basically went through that article. It produced an effect for about two weeks and that some people were questioning why they prescribed it. And then that effect was gone. I gave the exact same talk about 10 years later to the same surgeons, but different group of residents. And none of them, well, the surgeons anyway, had not learned a thing from that. And the new residents, this was brand new information to them. And so I knew from that point onwards that in fact, maybe it's true. Someone had postulated long ago that drug companies own medical schools and they only teach you pharmacology to push their drugs. And it became very, very apparent that this was true. I, I in fact, um, I al always question um, why there are no studies comparing, let's say, generic drugs versus name brand drugs, because with generic drugs, um, it's much cheaper. But do you really know that they work just as well? And so I have always been against um, generic drugs until one time um, I was offered a generic form of a medication that I was taking and I took it and I got this very curious pain in my leg, which is a common condition of patients that I see, very classical, you know, of patients who have poor blood flow to their legs. And I did all the investigations on myself um, and realized that I don't have this blood flow problem. I, the other possibility is that I don't have this nerve problem either. <clears throat> Um, and then I tried to sleuth it around by stopping the drug. And stopping the drug, my pain got better. I then went back to take the drug and my pain came back. So then I took take myself off the drug and I reported it. And when I went to report it, um, my family doctor had no idea how to report a drug side effect like this. I went to the pharmacist and they had no idea how to report a drug side effect like this. So I had to go to the Health Canada website to report this, uh, and I am sure that it's buried. I subsequently have written an article about this very unusual side effect as a manifestation of a serious complication that occurs in the generic form of this drug. And so ever since then, I've been highly skeptical about things. I would say that from a political um, point of view, from 2016, when Donald Trump won the presidency by a fluke, and half the world was, um, well, maybe not half the world in the world that I live in, 90% of the people were at an absolute shock. But it basically said, well, he's different. He's a business person. Why don't you just wait and see? And then they brought out these allegations of him with this um, Russiagate thing. But I followed the story to the Mueller investigation. And when that was all reported, in fact, it was all a lie. It was fabricated. Um, and yet at the same time, all, the, all the, these people who are Trump haters, and I would say that's the vast majority in my extended family, none of them were aware of this. And so I've been extremely skeptical about what's been happening for a long time. So much so that when there was this unknown respiratory illness that came out in 2019, I could not believe that it wouldn't, didn't come from, um, it wasn't fabricated. And when it said it came from Wuhan, China, and I knew that there were dealings with our level four lab in Winnipeg, potentially sending samples to the Wuhan lab, having two scientists unceremoniously escorted off their campus by the RCMP 
without further disclosure of why they did that, the number of uh, grad students who are running in and out of that lab from China, I sort of you know, wondered about the two and two that did Canada have a role to play in the development of the COVID virus? Um, there seems to be a lot of connections going on here. And then when this outbreak occurred and um, I, I was born in Taiwan, and then the Taiwanese government basically said there is person-person transmission of this and which was vehemently denied by the Chinese. Um, I thought this, this is really interesting. Um, and then in early 2020, um, when Trump closed their um, airports to incoming Chinese flights, similar to what they did in the Far East, Japan, Singapore, um, Taiwan, because they had experienced SARS earlier. And so they, th this was their pattern of what they were anticipating. And the comment was that this is a racist move against the Chinese, whereas in Trudeau allowed our airports to remain open to the Chinese. And if you track the where all these COVID cases outside of China were happening, you could link it all to Chinese travelers. They were going to Iran, they were going to Italy. Um, and so the, the uh, first Americans who, who developed COVID, it came from China, it happened in Seattle. And so in a way it's like, well, uh, clearly, it's it's come from a fabricated lab, um, and then at the time you could, when you could watch YouTube and YouTube have all kinds of really interesting um, programs on, and you could, you know, take a deeper dive. Uh, we've we don't read um, mainstream newspapers. We don't have cable TV, and so we rely on alternative sources such as YouTube at the time. And there were some very interesting stories put out by now, I would say, um, heroes, such as uh, Geert van der Bosch, um, Brett Weinstein, or Dark Horse, uh, a number of very interesting uh, you know, uh, stories that um, uh, this is uh, fabricated. Plus, the fact that when this thing finally broke in early, I would say January or February, they knew the genome of this virus so quickly, they knew how it entered the cell. Um, and so I thought that was remarkable. And on top of that, they were developing um, vaccines against it. And it's, it's like, wow, you guys were so prepared. Um, and so when I think that Trump was a corner basically saying that um, vaccines are the way out of this mess. Um, and then he, he, he had Operation Warp Speed, he threw billions of dollars at the problem to develop a vaccine. And then that was published. The results were published only after the US election in 2020. So the timing could not have been worse. They knew the results. They could have published it before um, November, 2020. But in fact, they chose not to. But that article, which is a classic, that was a Pfizer article that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, in December, 2020. That article is very flawed. Um, it's very flawed on a, a number of reasons. I won't you know, uh, comment on that. But it just seems so strange that you had a remedy off the shelf, ready to go, but you only have two months of data uh, in a um, stage three clinical trial, and you need long-term data, which will not become available until maybe at the end of 2023. 
Um, and the on the basis of that, you're recommending this emergency use authorization, which in fact um, is a top-down recommendation from the US government, CDC, seems to have spread to all other governments um, without consideration of the possibility that in fact, you have insufficient data um, to really recommend this without any attempt whatsoever to reevaluate the information uh, as you go along with this new program. Um, and so uh, when it came time, um, you know, for me to um, take the vaccine or not, I, I felt that uh, it's, it's um, there's so many unknowns. Um, and I, I felt that um, there are, is going to be a potential long-term risk from this. You just don't know about it yet. Um, and so because of that, I decided not to take it. So that's a, a long story. No, but it's it, it's quite an enlightening story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Dr. Uh, Jeffrey Sachs came out last week confirming that the that the you know COVID did come out of the Wuhan lab. Oh and yeah. He, he's a he's a top character in right. this in this business. So the fact that he's coming out confirming that <laughs> that you know for the last year and a half that was deemed to be conspiracy, and now he's saying no. No, right. the, the data is there. The, the information is there. It's a legitimate, this is legitimate news. Right. And then I found very interesting just this week, uh, Dr. Paul Offit, who's a close peer of Fauci, mm -hmm. came out and said, well, actually, I cannot believe that the vaccine was approved. I don't think the, the committee that voted yes to proceed, he said, I'm puzzled. Uh, so all of a sudden, you're seeing backpedaling mm -hmm. from some key characters mm -hmm. on, on COVID, on, on its origins, and on the vaccine and its safety. Uh, I find it fascinating that these people are emerging now who right. have quite uh, a bit of credibility. Right. I think what's really fascinating, because you know, I, I just follow the medical literature, early on in 2020, um, when we're when COVID was so new, um, the New England Journal of Medicine and possibly some other journals, they actually came out with a statement which was um, I was flabbergasted by it. They basically said we know nothing about this, but there's some reports that are coming in fast and furious, and so we're not going to have peer review. We're going to publish it as it comes in, and it's it's like, man, have you lost your your marbles so what are you talking about well and this this is the very thing that happened with the pcr test dr yeah. Drosten published a paper and right. had approval had peer review or the process was 24 hours yes well in the history of time have you ever seen that no 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 you know and this is a test that is determining the fate <laughs> of seven billion people on the planet Right. As to whether or not you, you know, it's the diagnostic tool being used globally. Correct. And the medical background, or how would I say, the the support, the scientific support of that. Right. Does not exist. Yes. So you can you can see that I've been very skeptical about medicine, about the drug companies, about um, published um, literature, journals. You know, why they would, you know, there there were there were articles that were published and then retracted very quickly in top journals, you know, why you, you certainly, you could not get 
certain publications printed. Um, so you'd have to go to a lesser journal to get that printed. And I could see all kinds of bias um, in every step of um, medicine. It, it's no. so unfortunate. This is, you had mentioned John from Stanford, and I'm not good at saying his last name, it's Greek. John Ioannidis, Ion, is it? Ioannidis. Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe just share a, a sketch of what, what it was, the paper that he put out back in 2005, which oh, I thought was quite- Yeah, he wrote, a very right, he wrote a very interesting paper that was published much earlier, um, saying that the vast majority of published medical literature is in fact wrong. Um, and he gave a number of reasons as to why it was wrong, either in the design of the study, the number of uh, patients, or um, let's say if it was an experimental study, samples. Um, it was just um, either you had a positive result, meaning it was a fluke, or you didn't have enough results, so you couldn't show an effect. Um, but I, I think that that is um, true and very telling um, and because uh, if we didn't have these bad articles, the journals would have nothing to print. Um, you know, that, that's the sad reality of it, because there are not many people who actually write articles, uh, at least from uh, physicians, mm -hmm. that don't actually, you know, write a bunch of articles. And if a scientific study cannot be reproduced, yes, that's not science. And yeah. I think we have yeah. a reproducibility crisis right now in the scientific world. Mm -hmm. um, especially, I think, in the medical industry, because there is tremendous money to be made. Oh, yes. The power that the, the pharmaceutical industry hold Absolutely. in society at every level mm -hmm. uh, is they have their agenda, which is money. Sure. And that agenda, they're, they're very effective at pushing their agenda. So mm -hmm. I find that John's, um, and he is, he's deemed to be one of the top most credible professors in the right. world. I mean, yes. his reputation is is extremely lofty. Mm -hmm. So for that is a scathing uh, commentary yes. on the state of affairs, I think. That but true. Yeah, very true. Mm -hmm. uh, so actually this, this brings up a society that you've been involved in in creating. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so... Um... There are not many BC physicians um, who um, are unvaccinated and um, chose to remain so. And so I would say that as a result of the mandates that were imposed in the fall of last year, there was a scramble amongst this very small group of physicians who felt strongly that vaccination or compulsory vaccination was the way out of this mess. And so they chose not to become vaccinated. That group of uh, physicians, initially, I would say it's close to about um, 100 uh, of us. I don't know how. We somehow uh, slowly found each other, um, a very sporadic, um, almost like a grope in the dark type of thing to sort of you know get together, introduce ourselves, and then trying to figure out what the hell we're going to do. Um, and so uh, we finally have uh, decided that we want to move forward. Um, and create um, a society of physicians, uh, which we call ourselves the Canadian Society for Science and Ethics in Medicine. Uh, you can find this on our website, cssem.org, where um, I would say our main aim is educational. Uh, it is education for uh, physicians, including ourselves, physicians um, who 
may not be, as we say, awake yet, as well as education for patients, um, how best to um, look after themselves in this time, perhaps um, some information as to what to do if you, you know, have COVID or, um, and even if we could, uh, especially as more information comes available, what can you do um, to uh, detox from the spike protein? I think that's one of the most uh, interesting aspects of this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Because the vaccine injuries vaccine are becoming injuries. more obvious every day. You, you know, um, I personally do not know a person who is vaccine injured, but then you, you have to understand that vaccine injuries, the probabilities like one in 5,000 for myocarditis, that's what the Ontario Health Minister has estimated. Do you as a person actually know 5,000 people? Ask yourself, mm -hmm. you know, what are their names? Where do they live? The vast majority of us, we know, my guess is maybe 50, at the most 100 people that we can name, 5,000. I, you know, very few of us know 5,000 people. So in fact, if you know of people who have been vaccine injured, and if the rate is about one in 5,000, then either you know a whole bunch of people, or that rate is actually far less than one in 5,000. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I have heard a bunch of stories, and yeah. I believe these are true stories about mm -hmm. vaccine injured um, patients. And I, my heart breaks when I hear these stories. They're, they're awful, awful stories happening in otherwise perfectly healthy people yeah. who in all likelihood, if they had developed COVID, they would have something equivalent to a bad cold or, or and they would get over it uh, and then they would be just fine. But mm -hmm. now they're permanently harmed you know, mm -hmm. by this. I had a very, very sad uh, conversation with someone who was a designer actually that I worked with a year ago and I contacted her as a follow-up uh, on an issue. And she said, I can't work anymore. Uh, right after I had my first shot, uh, within a few days, I had a massive stroke, oh, gosh. Um, paralyzed on one side of the body, couldn't, couldn't walk. Uh, so she had to go into rehab and her doctor went to bat for her and created a, a case for her to apply for uh, compensation through the vaccine injury support program. And she was denied. And her life is completely upside down. She no longer can work. She no longer can drive. She's, her life is, is catastrophic. Hmm. And for insult to injury, when she's in care in a rehab center, they forced her to get the number, shot number two oh my and, and demanded that she sign a waiver, of a liability waiver. Hmm. And, uh, but said she must do this if she wanted to continue in their care in rehab uh, this is criminal so it, it's you know and i i do know a lot of people who are vaccine injured um i don't know why but in my circle i know so many mm -hmm. they may not connect the dots but i certainly am connecting the dots because mm -hmm. all of the injuries have happened within a week usually three or four days of, the, of the vaccine so i've seen it in my circle i've got at least a dozen Right. Uh, but I do know a lot of people and a lot of people reach out to me and share their stories. But um, but this one, this particular one this week was heartbreaking because I thought the Canadian Vaccine Injury Support Program apparently has paid out very little 
Mm -hmm. I, I believe under 10 people mm -hmm. have qualified. I don't know what you need to prove to qualify for that program. But to me, this is a very obvious case. This is a, a woman who is similar age to me in great health. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden, you know, I think the coincidence, what's, what's the chance, right. but interesting. Okay. So that this uh, Canadian society for science and ethics, I think that that's a really good catch all for maybe other academics, either other scientists, physicians, researchers, professors, and general public that can reach out to this organization and at, you know, receive um, either information or support or make a connection. So Absolutely. Uh, yeah. that, that's very good. Tell me a little bit about your, your personal situation with COVID and your mom in, in a care home. Oh, yeah. So uh, my mom is um, probably about 98 years old. You know, she's <laughs> never told me her birthday. And so I, I have to guess. Um, but um, she's been in long-term care since... Um, October 2019, and the care facility that she's in is actually very, very good. I think the staff are excellent. Um, and at the beginning, I was, um, I was very impressed. I would um, go in anytime I wanted to, uh, to see my mom, the staff were always very helpful. But when COVID rolled around, and we were initially told that we couldn't come and visit our relatives at all, and then we heard stories of um, COVID outbreaks, it happened in every one of the long-term care homes, including my mother's. And then they basically, it sounded like they were confined to their rooms and meals were delivered and they were never brought to the common areas to interact with the other residents. Um, and finally, when this was all over, there was a, a short period where we could go in and we had to don the PPE to see my mom and things. And um, she wasn't the same after that. I mean, her mind, it was going anyway, but it, her mind was completely shot. Um, she only knew uh, my name as well as my brother's name. She didn't even know uh, our wives' names. Uh, even though you know, we've been married for a very long time, she didn't know any of my children's names. Um, and so it was quite obvious that that isolation uh, the, of that period, it has had profound effects. In fact, talking to the staff, they said, your mother is not alone. All the residents are like this. They have all taken this they all had this huge mental change. And then when things um, rolled out even further and the vaccines became available, um, you had to be vaccinated um, to, do, to see your, your mother. And so it was some form of cruel punishment that um, we're not gonna let you see your mother until you're vaccinated. And so I have not seen my mom since then, except for three times when my mom uh, was considered to be pre-terminal, they would uh, call me up and say, you better hurry up and come to essentially like pronounce last rites for your mother because we don't think she's gonna last very long. And then I'd come and then I realized that in fact, um, they have overdosed her with sed sedatives, uh, sedation to keep her quiet because you know she's probably anxious where she is. She's crying out, she wants attention. And so their response is let's sedate her. Let's just shut her up. Um, and so that's what they've done. And on three separate occasions, I've gone in to see my supposedly mother who's about to expire quickly, realized that it was a drug overdose, told them it was a drug overdose, told them to hold the sedation and my mother would wake up after 24 hours. And then after that, it's like, well, you can't come and see your mother anymore. You know, you gotta be vaccinated. So it's this incredibly cruel punishment on unvaccinated um, people for whatever reason that they are denying you the most basic 
um, family relationships at a time when your loved ones, they don't have much longer to live um, and you can't see them. Um, so I, I, just, I just find this, mm -hmm. it's just cruel and unusual punishment is what it is. It's a heartbreaking, it's a heartbreaking story. And it is the story of so many. It is. Been deprived right. from contact with their loved ones. And for those who are unvaccinated, an inability to see their loved ones mm. in hospital or care, mm. it, it's cruel. It, it certainly is. Yeah. You know, this, these sort of pandemic protocols, these are not, these, this is not pandemic protocol that is in the books. These have been made up as we go. Absolutely. And you, you have to question who's behind this. Sure. Who do you think is behind this? Well, you know, it's, it's very interesting. I don't think there's necessarily one person who's behind this. I think that um, somebody comes along and uh, has a good idea and it's an untested idea, but they think it's a good idea and then suddenly it becomes policy. Um, I, I, can, uh, I can give you a brief example. Um, and so there's a practice in our hospitals and it's called timeout. And it's, it was, um, it's based on airline pilots needing to do a timeout before you take off to check everything. And the concept of timeout was in fact um, brought in in publication in 2004, um, where um, the investigators at the time were looking at the results of 10 hospitals around the world. Five were in westernized countries, five were in developing countries. And they looked at very crude things like um, um, death rates from the operation and infections from the operations. And what they did was that they um, introduced this checklist that they called timeout. And the checklist was like, got the right patient, you're operating on the correct side, you mark all that, you introduce yourself to everybody, did the patient have their antibiotics beforehand, and this went on. And then they published their results collectively amongst the 10 hospitals, and they showed that there was a benefit when you introduce this timeout thing. But they, and the what they call the secondary analysis of it, the comparison of the hospitals in the developed countries versus the undeveloped countries, they didn't actually label it, but you could see that five of the hospitals did not improve. Mm. Five of the hospitals did improve. One of those five hospitals was the Toronto hospital. We had Canada actually played a role in it. When they brought this into all the hospitals in Canada, um, Everybody thought this was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And so they brought in this timeout. And um, as a result of this, they never evaluated the program until there was a publication about 10 years later in the entire province of Ontario, comparing the results three months before timeout and three months after timeout in 100 Ontario hospitals and showed no difference in improvement. That was the only published evidence a timeout doesn't work. However, in our hospital, timeout was thought to be such a great thing that they expanded it to not once, not twice, but three timeouts. So there's a timeout that occurs maybe about 45 minutes before the operation. There's a timeout that occurs in the operating room just before you're about to cut skin. And there's a third timeout that occurs after the operation. So some administrator thought this is such a fantastic thing, let's just expand it even further. So to, to talk about who possibly would have introduced the concept that we're not gonna let these um, unvaccinated people you know, visit their, their folks. 
I, I think it's much like the fact that you have to be vaccinated to go into a restaurant. Well, there's no evidence that you have COVID spreading in the restaurants, but they are denying unvaccinated people as essentially as torture or as they would call it coercion to get you vaccinated. But at the same time, they're punishing restaurant owners. You know, uh, what kind of policy is this? I don't think it's necessarily a top-down policy. I don't think there's some little one, one or two evil minds, but I think that just, it's gone to some, uh, an, an administrator uh, and they have sort of taken it upon themselves to think that now they think they know what is really happening. They think that, uh, and it's, it's virtual signaling is what it is, that they could do more virtuous things like this and drive down the infection rate even more, right? And um, they have absolutely no evidence of what they are doing. It's just this idea that they have and they suddenly becomes policy. Uh, and they will never test whether to, to see if the policy was correct or not. That's the unfortunate thing. Yeah, yeah. So do you have any opinion on the withholding of treatment during COVID? The fact that ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine and other basic uh, you know, vitamins have shown to be scientifically very helpful in the treatment of COVID, and yet that essentially has been banned or barred. Yeah, uh, that, do you have any yeah. opinion on that? Oh, I have lots of opinions on that. Um, again, going to my medical school days, um, we had a cardiologist who had a famous saying. He said, any drug can do anything. And he left it at that. And I never understood that statement coming from a cardiologist until I had been a physician for a long time and then realized that any drug can do anything. When you think about all these very unusual side effects that could happen um, from certain drugs or certain drugs can be used in different situations. And we have a, as practicing physicians, most of our practice, I would say is not scientifically proven. We, we do things because it was, that's the way it was taught to us, but primarily we do things because of personal practice. We have developed experience knowing what works for certain patients in certain situations. And every physician is like that. And as a result of that, uh, physicians have been um, given the freedom to practice the best way they know how, because they know their patients best. And frequently they practice what's known as off-label. Off-label pre um, prescribing means that you're recommending a medication that maybe it wasn't for its true intentional use, but you know that this medication would work in this area. And the college has always allowed us to do off-label practice. One of the most common off-label practices as it extends to surgery, in fact, is the most common procedure on your heart or on your leg is a procedure called angioplasty, where they use a balloon to stretch up your artery. Mm -hmm. That has never been demonstrated for use in blood vessels. That technology is approved only to treat the liver, what's known as a bioducts. But the process, the little balloon, can be applied to essentially any tubular structure. So they have adapted that to be used in blood vessels. And even the package inserts on these angioplasty balloons says, this is a use only for diseases of the liver and biliary system. 
but we use it routinely on, on, in the heart, on all the blood vessels in our body, that is completely off-label use. Mm -hmm. um, and so the college knows this, or maybe they don't, uh, but they allow us to do it because we've been doing it for so long. But for the college to actually step in and tell practicing doctors the way to practice medicine, you cannot prescribe these medications. You can only pre prescribe that medication. That's never been done before. That, that is a society that none of us um, have practice in or, or, or live in, at least with, that's what we thought. And what do you think was the motive? I think it's profit. I think it's um, driven by drug companies. It, it's quite interesting that um, you know you use uh, use ivermectin as an example. Ivermectin was has been used so successfully um, in third world countries, primarily as an antiparasitic medication. I was previously I was not aware of this, um, but for some reason, because any drug can do anything, it actually has effects on the. Um, cellular mechanism of how viruses get into get into cells and is highly highly effective against viruses as it is also against parasites. Um, but ivermectin, it's generic. It's been generic for so long. Um, the original company that made it, Merck, can't make a dollar off of this anymore. Um, they want to make an offshoot of ivermectin. You know, change a few, few of few of the chemical compounds. Uh, don't alter it too much, and then market it as a new wonder drug. Um, at the same time, that Merck was actually behind stopping ivermectin being used, um, and so the um, pressure, financial pressure of Merck, as well as other large uh, drug companies, on so-called governing bodies, FDA, NIH, CDC, has had a terrible deleterious effect. A trickle down effect um, onto how we're allowed to practice. And I don't know why the college doesn't step up and said, we don't treat, the college does not treat patients. We have doctors who treat patients. We look after doctors, we assess their credentials. If there are complaints against doctors, we investigate them. But we don't treat patients. And so we should allow the experts, i.e. the doctors who treat the patients, to do their fine work. And if there are, if there are criticisms, comments about problems with the doctor's practice, we will investigate. That's how the college has always functioned. And I think that's the college's responsibility. Mm -hmm. the, the college's responsibility is not to get um, into the prescribing practices of physicians. Well, the fact that uh, the physicians in Canada have not been able to use some of these effective treatments to me is criminal. I agree. And I agree. also it affords the emergency use authorization because from what I understand, you cannot have emergency use authorization if you have effective treatment. That is correct. So you don't need to be an Einstein to connect the dots here. Absolutely. So yeah. in other words, the College of Physicians is in bed with big pharma. I agree with you. In pushing so. the agenda. You know, the most interesting study, and I don't think it could be done now, would be in fact a randomized controlled trial of vaccines versus these off-label medications. And let's see who gets COVID. Exactly. Well, okay. on that topic, 
Mm-hmm. Who is getting sick now in your mind, the vaccinated or the unvaccinated? Oh, it's quite clear. It's the vaccinated who are getting sick. But how is the media not able to expose this? Or how is this the best kept secret? You know, I don't think it can remain a secret for much longer because there are so many published articles, um, including from North America, that demonstrates that the majority of uh, patients with COVID in hospitals are in the vaccinated. Mm. Well, on that topic then, the government last week suggested that every Canadian is going to require a booster to be up to date in their vaccine status. What do you think is gonna be the reaction amongst Canadians with this new policy? I think the government is going to be um, sorely surprised that a very large proportion of the population are are going to say no. Um, And so um, I think people have had it with vaccines that don't work. I think people have had it with vaccines that produces um, infrequent but very serious non-reversible injuries that completely changes someone's life. Um, And I think that, um, I don't know what they're gonna do. Uh, We have concurrent crises in housing, inflation, healthcare. Um, I think that this type of policy is just going to um, throw fuel on the fire. Mm -hmm. It may instigate kind of a mass awakening I was just in Europe for a month and the the climate there is very different than in Canada. In the UK, in Ireland, people are waking up. People are pushing back from the government. They're exposing all of the shenanigans and people are really cynical of the government, of all the lockdowns, of the whole agenda. They're questioning and holding the government to account. Canada's not there yet. I think there's a stranglehold on information. Mm-hmm. I guess Trudeau has bought up yes. media here. So in Canada, it's a very different uh, climate right now as opposed to Europe. Mm-hmm. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the supply chain issues in, in medicine. Uh, what are you noticing? Well, um, I personally have not noticed very much in terms of the, the medications that I normally take. I, I haven't that has not been difficult for me to um, get those medications. However, I am aware, uh, since there are a a number of radiologists in our group, that there's a very important um, medication, and it is contrast dye that you need for x-rays, CT scans in particular. There is a huge supply chain issue with contrast dye, such that the expectation is that within maybe about six weeks, there's not going to be enough dye to go around for these CT scans. And so uh, when it's uh, fundamental that you require dye, um, I don't know what you're going to do at that point. Um, I think that is a huge crisis. And I suspect that uh, if there are problems getting adequate supplies of contrast dye, it can't be the only medication. I I think you're right. I think that um, there are supply chain issues that it's going to affect a lot of different medications. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, my experience at a London Drugs locally here, uh, they closed the pharmacy section of London Drugs four mm-hmm. hours 
earlier than it normally would close. And when I asked the pharmacist what they were doing, they said, well, we can't get, we, we can't, there's not enough pharmacists to man the fort here, but also we're in short supply of a lot of medicine. And the, the, in this particular London drugs, the, you know, even the off shelf or, you know, the, the Tylenol kind of antihistamine, the general section, they wrote that off as well. You could not purchase once the pharmacy closed, um, but they were, the, the shelves were stripped bare. And I've noticed that in the Safeways as well, locally that I've been to. It's, so there's supply chain issues. So I've been telling my friends, if you're on any prescription meds that you really do need, you might want to source those sooner than later and get, get a good solid supply. Mm -hmm. Because I think that when word gets out, then, then panic sets in and, and people start to hoard. But, oh dear. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about Brian Day, because there's a very important decision with the BC Court of Appeal that apparently is going to be announced on Friday. And you just shared that right. with me. Um, sure. what, um, me kind of outline what has happened with Brian Day and the importance of this decision on Friday. Right. Um, for those who don't uh, aren't aware, uh, Dr. Brian Day is an orthopedic surgeon uh, in Vancouver, and uh, he has been running a so-called private surgical um, clinic called the Canby Street Surgical for maybe about 20 years. Um, and um, the majority of his clients are, in fact, government. Um, who gets to use it? Most commonly WCB, RCMP, the Indigenous and politicians are the primary people who use it. Um, you can use it only if you have a third party payer for you. What Brian Day has been saying is that um, um, the public healthcare system is under huge stress. It has been for years and years. Canadians need an alternative. And if the alternative is a public pay uh, system, then Canadians should have the ability, or at least the choice, um, to be able to do that. It, in fact, um, there was a celebrated case in Quebec in 2004 called the Kahuli versus Quebec case. And the name of Kahuli is not a patient, but in fact, a physician who joined in with that case. Um, the patient in particular had an orthopedic problem. It was either a hip or a knee problem. And he specifically asked the uh, Quebec government if I have the ability to pay for this, why can't I pay for this? Um, the Quebec Supreme Court ruled in favor uh, of the plaintiff. And as a result, they have some degree of uh, private care in Quebec. There was a very interesting moratorium that was issued um, throughout Canada as a result of that suit. For the next 12 months, um, or 12 or 18 months, you could not bring a similar lawsuit in any province in Canada. And so what that did as, it, as the effect of it came to BC, what the BC government did was it threw a whole bunch of money to shorten its wait list, in particular, the orthopedic wait list, cataract wait list, and the coronary, uh, let's say heart surgery wait list um, to make it look much better. Now, specifically, in Brian Day's case, what has happened is that um, he took his uh, case to the BC Supreme Court in 2020 and lost. Um, but he has filed an appeal a year later. And the result of his appeal, which will be um, reported by the um, uh, appellant court, this Friday morning, 
um, will set off, I would say, um, significant impact, especially if Brian actually wins his appeal. Um, you know, even if he wins his appeal, it doesn't mean that there's going to be widespread um, change happening immediately because there, there's no, there are no other institutions, there's no infrastructure for private hospitals. But I think that given the current healthcare crisis, the government, um, they created the mess. They can't solve the mess. No matter how much money they want to throw at it, in its present situation, it is unsolvable. Mm -hmm. This would, in fact, be some type of relief for Canadians who really, you don't want to wait in an emergency room, I don't know, half the day. Um, you, um, you're on a very long wait list for a small operation that doesn't even require hospitalization or at the most overnight hospitalization. Uh, we're not talking about building massive hospitals that would do all the big time surgeries, all the heart surgeries, all the lung surgeries, even the type of majority of surgery that I do. We're not talking about building that. Um, we're talking um, something much smaller, but much more applicable. In other words, um, why are there so many British Columbians who don't have a family doctor? The, Brit the, the only medical school in BC expanded three times its intake over the last 15 years from 100 graduates to 300 graduates a year. Three quarters of medical students who graduate, or at least half to three quarters, are, should go into family practice residencies because the government funds the residency positions. If you can't qualify to go into a, spe into a specialty, um, you know, residency, then your backup is going to be family practice. So you go into family practice, but why can't you become a family practitioner? They don't want that lifestyle. They don't want that lifestyle for a whole bunch of reasons. Why don't you talk to them and find out why they don't want that lifestyle? Is it because you chose the wrong person to go to medical school? You chose someone who's multi-talented can speak a bunch of languages, has traveled the world, is a fantastic sports person, is a musician, is a poet. And when they graduate, they want to still be that fantastic person. They don't want to do medicine 100% of the time. Like dinosaurs like me, as well as my predecessors, we work crazy hours. You need at least two or three of them to replace one of us. You're choosing the wrong person. Could it be that they see all the limitations of being a family doc, of all this paperwork, of being underpaid, underappreciated? Um, so throwing money at the problem, going to the feds and say, give us more money, um, is not going to solve it. Your problems are inherent. You don't have any mechanism for innovation in the government. You don't reward innovation. I have some innovating ideas. I'm not going to tell them, you know, because all my innovating ideas means breaking all of your ideas that don't work. That's right. It, it's it's so ridiculous. It's it's a completely broken system, and I think draw a very important sort of point in saying that the selection process 
you're not selecting people who have a servant mindset, who okay. have a passion for medicine. The old fashioned family doctor loved medicine and loved his patients. And, you know, was happy to have hospital privileges and did not put himself first. But right. the current grad has gone into medicine for prestige, for Absolutely. money. Yes. And the reasons are wrong, but you're right. They're selecting the wrong candidates. And then mm -hmm. we have this crisis. Sure. Um, and well, there was a very interesting interview on Canada Day on the Michael Campbell show. And he had Peter Brown on. Mm -hmm. Now, Peter Brown, people know him from Canaccord. Very successful, you know, in, in the investment world, uh, kind of an iconic character in Canada. But he was talking about the brokenness of Canada. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we are in dire straits. In his right. mind, we are in a catastrophic state right now. And he we talked, in, you know, extensively about the twisted ideology of our right. government, of Trudeau right. and company. Very peculiar ideology. And our country is being driven into the ground. And he, he talked about the medical system and he said, not only has Canada got one of the most expensive systems in the OECD per capita, yes. but in terms of deliverables, we are at the bottom of 38 right. countries in terms of deliverables in the healthcare system. So it's broken. We need to recreate it from Absolutely. the ground up. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think it's very um, exciting to think that if a parallel system develops, people like you who have tremendous critical thinking ability, tremendous, you know, ability to reason and tremendous experience, um, both in, uh, you know, as a, as a professor, so academically, scientifically, and practically, because you practice surgery, people like you should be at the helm to recreate a new system. Do you think this is going to happen? Do you think a parallel system is going to be uh, kind of emerge uh, for, for the unvaccinated, but for everyone, because I know the unvaccinated, we do feel we don't trust our physicians right now. Our, our physicians are badgering us to get vaccinated and will not hear uh, our valid concerns. They hush us up and t just tell us to drop in line and cooperate or, or you know, so what do you see as the future here? Um, I would say that we can't continue going on like this. Um, the, um, there are no good solutions to how, how things are. Uh, we can, and we can only spiral further downwards. I think the emergence of a parallel system, you're starting to see some of it um, in small form. I think that a lot of it is primarily at the discussion stage. Um, and I think that's probably where you want it to, to start because a lot of the problems in medicine is in administration as in a whole bunch of other different fields where you have an, an enormous expansion of the administrative class so much so that they intrude on the practice of the practitioners. Um, I think that small projects, pilot projects to demonstrate the feasibility and success of it will beget larger projects. I don't think you should have start off with an enormous plan at the beginning uh, because I think that that will just attract all these administrators who want to sort of tinkle with your plan. I think that a few people, like-minded people want to get together serve a community, demonstrate that it can be done, the mushrooming of these similar types of smaller parallel uh, communities 
I think that's the way it will happen on a, on a grassroots level. Mm -hmm. I must say that um, you, you say that patients, some patients may not trust the doctors anymore. The doctors are requesting that they get vaccinated every three, six months or whatever. I would say that patients are also, I, I suspect there are a number of patients who want to see an unvaccinated physician. Because it's not the fact that they're unvaccinated, which, by the way, even if they're unvaccinated, in all likelihood, they have natural immunity because they were working during 2020. It's the fact that they are open-minded, that they didn't take this for a personal reason, that they were, they were not doing this um, at great, oftentimes at great expense to themselves. You know, they, they had mortgages to pay. Uh, I know doctors who marriages have broken up over this. You know, but they felt strongly that this was the correct way of, of, of doing things. And I know that those doctors will do the very best for their patients. And I'm sure the patients realize that too. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. There, there is a, a, an instant respect. If you mm -hmm. know the physician has chosen not to get vaccinated, you automatically will trust him because you feel as though he's objective. Right. Critical thinking is there. And he is more likely to act on your behalf, to be an advocate for you. Yes. Because ultimately, we want a doctor mm -hmm. who advocates for us and is not acting as a puppet for big pharma. That's correct. So the, the element of trust. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm very eager to hear what the outcome will be of, of the Brian Day uh, decision. I think that that will be uh, a very important decision going forward. But regardless, are you hopeful that this parallel system will emerge? And in what form? What are you seeing? Because it will be grassroots. I agree with you. Right. Where, where do you see signs of hope or, or progress? Um, I see signs of hope when more and more people basically stand up and say, I'm not, not going to take this anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that um, that is going to happen because I can't think of one thing that the government is currently doing that is actually really beneficial. You know, it seems like that uh, they have so many fires put out, everything's a crisis. Um, I think that there will be emergence of um, these small parallel communities in communities where there is a need um, for, for this. In other words, they are affected the most. And I think that in other words, in BC, it's, it appears to be in the interior. Um, I think uh, it will happen in communities where there is less government overreach, uh, such as um, in indigenous uh, communities. And I think that the indigenous communities have been poorly served by governments for a long time as well. And so in a way, the unvaccinated have some similarities that they can now share with the indigenous. They know that um, you know they 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 um, they've been persecuted, um, and and they're they can now share that type of um, uh, mindset. So mm -hmm. I, I think that from there there will be um, a number of smaller parallel societies that will grow. I don't think it'll be uh, one standard approach uh, to mm -hmm. to how to manage a situation because I think much like patients, every patient is an individual, their circumstances are all different and under the uh, different regional um, situations, I think that's how it'll um, bubble up and uh, continue to grow.
Well, there certainly is the manpower to proceed because I have two family members, two nieces who are nurses, who are unvaccinated, who ironically worked on the COVID ward for one year. And then when they refused to be vaccinated, were dismissed without pay and without eligibility for uh, employment insurance. Wow. So, you know, that's a double, that's a double, double penalty. But now the, in, in some provinces, I think that they have allowed, they've reinstated those nurses who are unvaccinated, but BC, no. But I look at my nieces and other nurses I know who have been dismissed. They're healthy. They're eager to work. They're professional. Yes. Right. They're capable. And they'll come to work. They're not chronically sick like their vaccinated peers. Correct. So yeah. if those, if, if that group of professionals are able to get busy and work in a parallel system, and if we as patients need to pay out of pocket, uh, perhaps that's, that's the future. Well, I think in a way, um, you get what you pay for. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you have access to a very high quality care in a very efficient, timely, um, timely manner, uh, and it's given to you um, by not by a robot, but actually by a human who actually cares for you, mm -hmm. um, I think patients will be very grateful. Absolutely. And I, I'm hearing a lot of my vaccinated friends complaining about the medical system because they're being pushed on to telehealth. Right. And they're furious because they are not allowed to see a doctor in person. They have to have this consultation on a phone with someone who does not know anything about them, but right. does have access to their medical records, but they have no relationship. And this is the way that medical, uh, medical care is being delivered in this country. It's, it's horrific. It is horrific. And people are really horrified by it, the vaccinated, because they're, they're, they're needing help now. And the delivery of care, I, I just, it's, it's, it's just, I'm, I'm just in shock. I, I'm so disappointed in this country that the way it's going. But I think we do need to be optimistic and proactive. And like you say, be part of the solution mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. help these emerging systems um, come along. And I think right. it's going to be tremendous demand. People want a relationship with someone and they want an open-minded physician that isn't pushing drugs. And, and we'll talk about things like vitamin D mm -hmm. and vitamin C and zinc and, yes. and lifestyle choices and diet and kind of more of a holistic approach, which from what I understand used to be the mechanism of healthcare before the Rockefellers got involved. Right. Yeah. So yeah. essentially our system has been hijacked. So we will be reverting back to the original system which was much superior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say for your viewers, I think that's a very important point because um, <clears throat> um, you're gonna have to look after your health yourself mm -hmm. because you aren't gonna get timely access to healthcare the way it's going now. So what can you do for your health? Um, right now it's summer, go outside, get lots of sunshine. What's lots of sunshine mean? Probably at a minimum, maybe 20 minutes on an exposed limb. Don't slather yourself in, in you know, sunblock. Um, do, I would say, frequent low impact things. Don't be too vigorous. What will, end, what will make you end up in a hospital is an injury. Mm -hmm. A cycling injury, a running injury, something like that. Um, Vitamin C, vitamin D, very important. 
what, how much you eat, how much alcohol, et cetera, because a lot of responsibility now is, is going to be up to you, um, especially at a time when one in five British Columbians don't have a family doctor. You know, if you have a family doctor, you're going to be a wait list for everything. Yeah, I think taking taking ownership over your own health, I think that we are going to have to be much more involved in oh, our care and reaching out to professionals that perhaps in the past we may not have reached out to. Mm -hmm. I was actually in Choices speaking with um, someone in the health department. Most of the staff I find in Choices in the health department are not vaccinated and they're very well educated on you know, natural remedies. Wow. And while I was speaking to this gal in the choices and asking her what what sort of uh, what's the typical scenario of who's coming in and, and seeking help, she said right now it's primarily uh, neurological. Oh, people are coming in with a lot of neurological issues. They yes. say they, their their memory seems to have been fading. Um, they're confused. They're forgetful. Um, they have headaches often. So probably some microclotting that is going on due to the vaccine. But while I was speaking with her, this man came up and he was just like, you've got to help me. Uh, now he's not going to his doctor. Here he is going into a choices seeking help. His legs look like mashed potatoes. They were a mess. Um, obviously some vascular issue going on and swollen and red and sore. And so here she is playing doctor with this gentleman who's desperate for help. Because in a telehealth call, how do yeah. you get help for how do you get help for that? What happened to the doctor sitting right. and, and touching you and, and examining you and looking in your eyes and having an established relationship with you so he knows what the you know the, the baseline is? Right. It, it's such a broken system. But it, I, it was a reminder to me that people are going to, out of necessity, be reaching out to other uh, in other forms, seeking mm -hmm. help. Mm -hmm. So the frontline people may be at the health health store, uh, or yeah. they may be uh, a dietitian, or it may be a naturopath that you know. Um, but I think that the the model of care it, it's in transition in yes. a very big way right now. Yes, but people are fearful. I hear so many people say, "I don't want to go to hospital because there's those stories swimming around of you wake up from general anesthetic and there's a card by your on your table that says they vaccinated you while you're asleep." I've heard so many accounts of that from nurses who work out in the valley. Oh, and either cool. while you're asleep or when you're under general anesthetic, they're taking the liberty to vaccinate you without your permission. So people, I think, are rightfully terrified sure. of, of mainstream healthcare right now. So we, yeah, we have such a crisis. Um, one last question I have for you. Sure. There's such a... Uh, a lack of information on what is going on in Asia. Mm -hmm. And you're from Taiwan. Do you mm -hmm. have any direct source of information as to what, what is really going on and what's the agenda over there? And what seems, there's a lot of confusion. Do you have any insight on that? I, I don't have any insider information, you know? And so I, I just um, follow non-mainstream news about that. Mm -hmm. But I think that, um, uh, Asia is obviously uh, there are a lot of different countries. You have primarily China, which dominates it, and China has this persistent zero COVID policy, which um, they are not about to fess up to the fact that it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And so I think that they're just going to go down a ruinous path that way. I think other parts of Asia, which 
likely locked down too severely um, without, with the, maybe the exception of Japan, which actually allowed for the use of ivermectin and maybe in Indonesia as well. The other Asian countries, Hong Kong, which is under the influence of China, Singapore, which locked down too severely, had a, a you know, a large outbreak of COVID. I think this is the effect that essentially it's um, uh, pay me now or pay me later. Mm -hmm. So you can pay me now by just getting out there in society and basically um, getting COVID or you can be paid later because you can't escape it. Uh, it's an airborne disease. It's not gonna disappear with the wind. Um, you know, it's... Um, everyone is going to get it at some point. And if you um, lock down too severely, not surprisingly, you're going to have a bunch of cases later on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, this is what the, the studies in Sweden have proven. Yes. Natural right. immunity is king. Yes. And at the end of the day, Sweden did the right thing. Yes. So, well, Dr. York Shung, Thank you so much for this conversation. I've really enjoyed chatting with you and you've answered all sorts of uh, questions and uh, just thank you so much for your time. You're most welcome. Okay. Thanks very much. We'll talk again. Bye bye now. Bye bye.